Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, Conversations About Impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique best self meets the world and contributes to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Anne May Chang. Anne May is Executive Director of Lean Impact at the Lean Startup Company. Previously, she was Chief Innovation Officer at USAID and Mercy Corps. She is author of Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. Prior to her pivot to the public sector, Anne May was a seasoned Silicon Valley executive with more than 20 years experience at such leading companies as Google, Apple, and Intuit, as well as a range of startups. She has spoken at TEDx Mid-Atlantic, South by Southwest, Social Good Summit, Skoll World Forum, and SOCAP. So welcome to the podcast, Anne May. I'm so delighted to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. So as I just shared with you before the call, I am so excited about your book because you're sharing some deep principles that are very near and dear to my heart and to my work around uh, what impact means in business and work and, and with nonprofits and, uh, and, and also employing some principles from the Lean Impact book that Eric Reese wrote a few years ago. So, um, super excited to talk with you about that. So, so with those parallels with Lean Startup, what are the similarities and what are the differences when you start to talk about Lean Impact? And maybe touch on one or two of those because I know there's probably more than one or two for each. Yeah, there's several. And maybe just for your listeners who may not be familiar with Lean Startup, uh, let me just start there. Um, Lean Startup was a book that came out, I don't remember now, maybe five, six years ago now, by Eric Ries, that I think was one of the books that just did a phenomenal job of capturing the best practices around innovation that have sprung out of Silicon Valley. You know, we see this incredible pace of progress coming out of Silicon Valley with new products and new innovations coming out of the time. And he really talks about sort of how does that happen? And with a focus really on this idea of um, it's essentially the scientific method on steroids, right? That, that the idea is that we experiment, um, iterate, learn as quickly as possible in order to build products that people really will want um, and uh, address real needs in the real world. Well, and what's so amazing about your background is that you've worked in both sectors. You worked in a very high-paced tech environment, including Google, and now you've worked in some very high-level nonprofit activities as well. So you have a really great perspective on both sides, which is quite rare. It is. It's unfortunately all too rare. I, I think of myself as a little bit being bilingual. I sometimes end up in rooms with people from both the tech world and the government or nonprofit world. And it's almost like I have to translate because we speak just different languages. And so it's been a fascinating journey for me to sort of immerse myself in this very different culture and language and way of working and looking at like sort of what both sides can learn from each other. And, and that's been the fascinating part of my journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so just going back to your, your initial question about Lean Startup. So Lean Startup has really came out of Silicon Valley and has been adopted far beyond in both business and government and beyond. 
Um, and Lean Impact, um, the book that I wrote, was really came out of a sense that while Lean Startup was getting all this traction in business and, and, and people were finding it phenomenally helpful in accelerating their pace of innovation, it wasn't getting the traction that I thought was needed in the social sector, the social sphere. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. I, I, I talked to a number of people who read The Lean Startup, who worked at a nonprofit or a social enterprise, and, and thought were really inspired, but then felt stuck because they couldn't figure out how to make it work in their world. And mm-hmm. let me just give two examples of why I think it's so much harder to innovate for good. Sure. Um, the number one uh, challenge is, is, I think, the nature of funding, that if you're in a for-profit business, you have usually your customer is also the person who pays for your good or service, right? So you, you create a product, you, you put it out there to sell, and if the customer buys it, you know that it's serving their needs, right? So you have an automatic feedback loop built in there. Um, in the social sector, a lot of times our customer is not the one that's paying for what we're providing. It's either a donor or a, a foundation or a, the government that, that's actually paying us for that. And so it's a much more complicated feedback loop. Um, and so it's, it's much harder to get the feedback that you need to make sure that you're on track. Um, and to make it even worse, a lot of the funders really um, require you to plan in excruciating detail in advance, down to the penny of what you're going to do for years in advance. And so it makes it very, it's a, can be very inflexible. It makes it difficult to adapt and change and iterate on what you're doing to constantly seek a better solution. And so that's a big challenge on the sort of structural funding side. Yeah. On the well, other it's, side, it's so challenging to be able to innovate because as you get into a situation and you see where the opportunities are and how another solution might actually better serve, you're not necessarily able to pivot to that because of the it's a bit of a hidebound process where you're stuck with your original plan. Exactly. And, you know, sadly, I've talked to several different nonprofit organizations who, you know, were awarded grants by foundations, started implementing those grants and delivering what they had proposed to do and discovered that it really wasn't working or wasn't working well. And because it was so onerous to go back and renegotiate it and change the plan, they just kept doing it anyway. And, of course, they don't want to talk about what foundation and what exactly the situation is. But this is all too common is that it, um, it's so difficult to change the plan that people don't bother. Yeah. Well, and it, it it's so difficult to go through that process. It eats up so much administrative and uh, time and energy just trying to shift things that people just continue. Yeah. Well, yeah. One of, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, a lot of times I think people have mistaken this notion of innovation and focused on this, the big idea, like, you know, we just need to come up with the big idea and that's going to change everything. And reality, what I found is that innovation is far more about how fast you can iterate and learn and much less about the big idea. If you think of some of the most innovative companies in Silicon Valley, like Google and Facebook, like Google didn't invent search and Facebook didn't invent social networking, right? But they... Mm-hmm were companies that were able to rapidly iterate and improve and continually um, test and, and you know, improve the feature set, improve their user interface, improve their algorithms so that they got head and shoulders above their competition. And, and I feel like that's something that we need more of um, when it comes to our efforts towards social good. Well, one of the things you talk about in the book is that good solutions to your problem may already exist. So we're kind of stuck in this romance of the brainstorm and the entrepreneur with the brilliant new idea. And I, I admit, 
we as entrepreneurs are a little little stuck on that, but it's not necessarily the best solution. Yeah, we really hold the, the, the big idea on a pedestal and, and everybody's out seeking the big idea. We have these contests and, um, you know, prizes and, and, and you just really encourage people to come up with new ideas. We're always seeking that thing that's going to change everything because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very tempting that if you just come up with the right idea, it's just going to change the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's so, um, you know, it's not that that doesn't occasionally happen, but it's so rare that I think we overly focus on coming up with the idea. And there's so many ideas out there that hold promise that we just haven't invested enough in to, do that sort of testing and iterating and improving that gets it to a point that it can really make a huge impact and it has an engine to allow it to achieve real scale. Right. And with a lower risk and a higher reward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things you said in your at the very end of your book was this great series of three statements, which is think big, start small, and relentlessly seek impact. So talk a little bit about that. What does that mean to you? What do those statements mean to you? Yeah, so when you when you were asking earlier about the difference with lean startup, as I was talking to, I interviewed over 200 organizations in my research for the book and tried to learn from them and sort of what they were doing and just try to seek out the best organizations out there that were making the biggest impact. And listen to what the challenges were they faced and sort of how they got through them. And these were the three themes that really came out for me. So one is the first one, think big, is that, you know, in Silicon Valley, we have no trouble thinking big. Every startup company is going to make a billion dollars and reach a million people, right? Right. Um, But in the social sector, what I found is that we have a tendency to have a constraint-based thinking, right? That we think within the constraints of what our budget is, what our staffing is, what the size and duration of a grant we're applying for is. And then we look at what the resources that we have or we could get and think, what could we do with that? Um, As opposed to sort of a needs-based approach, which is like, what is the need in the world um, you know, how many people, you know, uh, what degree do we need to make a difference here to, to really matter and then figure out how to get there. And, and um, so I think that kind of shifting from that constraint based approach to a needs based approach is, is, is really something that could make a huge difference because we don't aspire to moving the needle in a substantive way. It's very unlikely we're going to do so. Mm-hmm. The the second is to start small. You know, that may sound a little counterintuitive, but I think that too often we tend to think too small and start too big. So instead, you know, I'm really an advocate for thinking big and starting small because the idea is we're working with problems that are really complex and there's a huge degree of uncertainty in understanding the best solution. These are long time intractable issues that we're trying to tackle. And so, you know, having the humility to recognize that we just are not going to come up with a perfect answer out the bat. And so what what's more important than just getting the perfect answer out there is to test and and start small start with five people or 10 people and see how they respond to something and learn from that before building out the staffing and infrastructure and processes right. to roll something out full-fledged and so i think too often we start too big um and then finally the relentlessly um seek impact is that what I've often seen is, you know, 
for businesses, um, there's no problem with relentlessly pursuing profits. Like it's sort of built into the system that, you know, you have to maximize shareholder value. But for a variety of reasons, I think even foundations and nonprofits often aren't maximizing impact, right? That they, that there's many things that get in the way. A lot of them are systemic problems, but some of them are about, you know, trying to promote your own organization, to promote your own idea, to, to stand out above the crowd rather than looking at how can we collaborate together? How can we adopt other people's ideas? How can we maybe you know, merge with another entity if that's the path that is going to achieve the greatest impact. Well, your book focuses a lot on the nonprofit sector, and you do touch on social entrepreneurs uh, quite a bit as well. I tend to think of impact in a very broad way in the sense of impact in terms of the environment you're creating within your company and the impact that has on your team members, your suppliers, and then impact in the larger world, in the community. Do you think that these principles of lean impact are applicable in that broad a sense, or do you see it purely as a, an outward focused kind of uh, perspective. Oh, I think I think it's uh, absolutely uh, in- appropriate for both. That that there's many many ways that we create, you know, help make the world a better place, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be internally to an organization. It can, you know, there's many examples in my book actually that are from for-profit, com- pure for-profit companies. Some from more like benefit corporations or B corps. Some from social enterprises and some from nonprofits. And the book was intentionally written to look at. Anyone who in any way has a primary purpose of doing good um, versus making profits. And so that can take any number of shapes or forms. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, that's why I, <laughs> I love the book so much because you really touch on all kinds of ways of having impact and it's uh, super powerful in that way. Plus, you get very practical about things. I mean, one of the things that you talk about is generating ideas and then evaluating them and talk a little bit about the ways that you feel ideas should be evaluated in the context of impact. Yeah. So, um, well, first of all, in terms of generating ideas, again, I think it's important to take our ego out of it and recognize that we don't have all the answers. So just in coming up with ideas, I think it's rare that any one of us comes up with a perfect idea, but that an idea can really be shaped by different perspectives. Those perspectives, I think, really should include the people who the the idea is most likely to touch, our so-called beneficiaries or customers, as well as the other stakeholders in the ecosystem who each will bring a different perspective because unless the beneficiary or our customer is very much like ourselves we often will miss things and you know subtleties that of you know how their lives are or you know kind of the conditions that they things happen in that that we may not be aware of and so engaging everyone I think is really important but not only the people in the ecosystem but also people who just bring a different set of tools and perspectives you know have an engineer in the room have a psychologist in the room have an artist in the room you know it's like everybody can see a different side of the elephant and together we can come up with the best solutions so I think it starts out with being more open and inclusive and diverse in how we come up with ideas in the first place and how we shape those ideas. Um, but then, you know, it, it's, it's, again, having the humility to recognize that we're probably wrong, at least about some things. Um, and, and <laughs> I think that's a, safe, that's a safe assumption. <laughs> yeah, I know that's true for me, right? That I'm, nothing's ever perfect out the yeah, gate. So yeah, if we go too. in, 
So if we go in with the assumption that we probably got something wrong, and the important thing is to figure out what that is as soon as possible, right? So, you know, if you find out like three years down the road, you've probably wasted a lot of time and money. But if you can figure it out tomorrow, there's something you can do about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I talk about, you know, once you have that idea is take the sort of devil's advocate um, stance and look at what are the things that might go wrong here and really ask those tough questions. A lot of times we just want to put our hands over our eyes and, you know, try to ignore that as long as we can. But I really, you know, kind of push people to say, hey, look at the things that could go wrong. What are this, the things that are essential to this succeeding? You know, and I talk about it along three dimensions of value, growth, and impact of does it provide value to your customer or beneficiary? Does it actually have impact, achieve the social benefit that you're trying to create? And is there a path for growth and scale that will actually get it out to people who could really stand to benefit? Hmm. Yeah, in the book, you have this diagram about how value, growth, and impact really mesh and how the three of them come together. One of the things you talked about regarding evaluating ideas was metrics, having uh, you talk about the difference between vanity metrics versus actionable or innovation metrics. Tell us about the difference between those and why one of your quotes actually is a culture of rigorous data collection is one of the primary drivers for greater impact. And I know in this realm for some nonprofits and even within business, this uh, the idea of, of establishing metrics for impact is a bit of a hurdle for people to get over. What would that look like? What would you measure? And do we really have to measure that? It seems like a soft thing. So can you talk about that in, in uh, terms of what metrics are valuable and, and uh, how, you, how you view that? Yeah, I'm happy to. And I'm thrilled that you asked this question because it, oh, it seems a little wonky, but I think it is so es- essential to if we're, if we're serious about achieving impact. And so to, to your question about the vanity metrics versus actionable or innovation metrics, in the nonprofit world, we tend to use what you know Eric calls vanity metrics in Lean Startup, which are these aggregate numbers. So how many people did we reach or touch or serve? And maybe how many dollars did we raise? How many partners did we have? Right. Mm-hmm. It's absolute numbers that are aggregates of total activity. And the reason that those numbers are not very meaningful is if you say you reached a million people, that sounds impressive. But did you really make the lives of those million people any better? Right. Right. <laughs> right. Like it doesn't actually say that. And it also doesn't say like how much money did you spend to reach those million people? Were you just really good at fundraising? And if another organization had gotten that money instead, could they have made a bigger difference or reached more people? So it's really not a meaningful metric at the end of the day to say, are you are you making a, a difference here? Um, so instead, you know, Lean Startup and Lean Impact talk about focusing on what we call actionable or innovation metrics. And these are metrics that tend to be at the unit level. So, you know, for example, rather than how many people did you reach, you know, what's what's your conversion rate for every person that you trained? How many of them were changed their behavior as a result? Right. Mm-hmm. So that's something that, you know, if you have if 20 percent change their behavior versus 80 percent change their behavior, that's a huge swing in terms of the impact that you're actually making. Right. And you track that and you start at 20 percent and you do a bunch of things to improve. So you get to 80 percent, even if you've only reached 100 people at that point, 
like th- that's incredibly impressive and I'm going to bet on you because then when I know when you go out and reach that million people, 80% of those million people are going to, you know, have their lives improved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is <clears throat> so valuable to know. It's, uh, it's one thing to say we've reached people, but it's another to talk about what effect is what you're doing actually having. So, yeah, well, I'd love to get into the kind of practical or boots on the ground aspects of lean impact. And one of the things you, you also talk about quite a lot in the book is to have adaptive and learn a learning centered approach versus some intricate plan. And it's about loving the problem, not your solution. So can you talk a bit about that and, and the emotional attachment we can have to a solution we've come up with that feels promising? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's really interesting because I think especially in the world of social good, people get very attached to their solutions. And I, th- and I think the reason is that almost any intervention we deploy, because people are all trying to do good, almost anything does some good, right? It's, it's rare that we do something that, you know, absolutely does no good. Um, and so when we see, you know, we put our energy, we put our money into something and we see it do some good and we see, you know, we get that feedback, we get very attached to that. It's like, hey, I helped this person. Um, and then, you know, we want to hold on to it. And it's also the thing we go out and we pitch to funders, we put on our website, we tell stories about. Um, and so we create a really strong identity about around our solution. And and what I really challenge people to look at is like, can we, instead of being so attached to our solution, stay focused on the problem at hand? Because, you know, sometimes your solution is the best solution to the problem, but there are also times where your solution is not the best solution. It may, it may just be you need to tweak your solution a little bit, or it may need, mean a you know, more significant shift that you, a different technology or solution may be more appropriate. And you're not going to know unless you stay focused on the problem and benchmark your solution against that problem. Like, is is your solution actually making it better? And is it making it better in a more cost-effective way than the alternatives that are out there? Yeah, great great question to ask. Well, one of the things that you talked about in the book, too, is failure. And that's an inevitable part of this iterative process where you're looking at you take a step, you test it, and you find out whether it works or not, and then you adjust and carry on with the next step. So move on. An organization you mentioned in the book has what they call a joyful funeral. Can you tell us about that? And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that term. Isn't that a great term? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're so terrified of, I mean, everybody's terrified of failure, but I think we're particularly terrified of failure in the social sector. Um, because I think we were so concerned about our reputations because that's how we get funding, right? And and uh, and also because we we plan these you know fairly big interventions. If the whole thing fails, you know that's a big deal. You know that you you've you you've been a steward of other people's money, and if you fail, that's not only an embarrassment, but you know you you, you should be accountable for that. So I th- I think I want to differentiate between a good failure and a bad failure. So a bad failure is you get a $5 million grant, you say you're going to do something, you create a grand master plan, you do it for three years, and at the end, like, nothing got better, right? <laughs> That's a bad failure. Yeah. Um, 
a good failure in my mind is that maybe in the same situation, you got $5 million, you started out in the first month, you tested out your plan with 100 people and you know you you did whatever it is you're going to do you trained them to do something you gave them something that would improve their lives and you found out it didn't work and then you did something different in month two. That's a good failure, right? Like you're, you're, you're failing early. You know, I, I say, you know, fail fast and often. Mm-hmm. You're failing early so that you're learning and you're, you're directing the rest of your time and money into much more productive purposes. Yeah, um, that is so important to consider. And you, I mean, failure's got a very bad name, so we hesitate to even say the word, but sometimes things don't work, and that is a reality. And if we try to avoid it, it's just going to drive us further down the road of, of increasing the, the, or decreasing the usefulness of what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I've worked with a lot of smart people, but um, almost none of them do I try. <laughs> to do everything perfectly. <laughs> well, I'm impressed that you know even one that can do everything perfectly. Well, the only one that comes close, and I wouldn't say he does everything perfectly, is um, Steve Jobs. I had uh, the opportunity to work with him at Apple. And, you know, he's one of the few people who really, I think, is a genius and has a vision and, and can sort of form something whole that is often, you know, right on the mark out the gate, although even he has had his failures. Yeah. Well, and he was so able to bring that vision to life. It's incredibly inspiring for people to, and when you have the whole picture in your mind, it makes it certainly easier to move forward and, and really push people to do that, which I understand he, he did as well. Yeah. And so if you're a genius like Steve Jobs, then ignore me and by all means, <laughs> grandmaster plan and bring it into the world. But if you're like the rest of us, yeah. I think trying to figure out how to test sooner to understand what are the things that we've come up with really are going to work in the real world um, is, is a much wiser way to go about it. Yeah, I agree. Well, for for the non-geniuses among us, the the, the vast majority, the, you also talk in the book about pivoting or persevering, making a decision about whether or not to abandon something. And I know Seth Godin in his book, The Dip, talks about deciding beforehand the conditions that'll cause you to stop. And in, in your book, you talk about objective success criteria. So how do you incorporate impact into that decision about pivoting or persevering? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and it, to, to our earlier discussion about, you know, staying in love with the problem, I think that's where this really comes in is, be, you know, we can get co- so caught up in the process and so caught up in doing things that we can forget to step back and really take a hard look at are we making progress in the grand scheme of things. And so, you know, I, I really encourage people to set up meetings in advance, right? That when you start going and running an experiment, set up a meeting in advance and say at this day next month or this day, two months from now, we're going to have a meeting. We're all invited. We have a conference room booked and we can get together and see, you know, where we are and, and make some tough decisions. And we're going to set those metrics ahead of time to say, what's our success criteria? You know, if 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 we're not hitting those success criteria, then is it worth still doing this? Right. So if if there's already a solution out there that for five dollars gets you, you know, you know, 80 percent success rate, if we can't beat that, then we should maybe use that solution instead of pushing our own. Right. (laughs) Right. And so 
So setting being clear on what those success criteria are, where your your what you have to offer is really adding something to the world, um, and and has a viable path forward and is really making a positive difference in a material way, um, and then holding yourselves accountable to that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the idea of you know the pivot or p- persevere meeting is to to step back at that point and look at the data you know and and not have it be about opinions but have it be about the real data that you've gathered through your experiments and to ask the question you know are we on track does it look like we're making good enough progress maybe we haven't hit it yet but are we making good enough progress towards the targets that we think are necessary for this project to succeed mm-hmm. if so let's keep going or if things have stalled out, we're not making that much progress, or we've you know run some experiments and we've confirmed that you know our assumptions are wrong, then you know we need to think about a different path, and that may be a different solution. It may be tackling a, taking a different strategy and tackling a different problem altogether. Mm-hmm. Well, kind of on the flip side of that, one of the things you also caution people about in the book is to you don't want to run experiments forever. Don't let yourself get too comfortable with this starting small, conducting experiments. At some point, you want to validate the solution and then move into a, a larger arena of action. Exactly. I mean, I, I think of it as you always want to stay at the edge of your seat, right? Um, you know, you want to test what I call your, your killer assumptions, sort of things that absolutely destroy your project. And once you run out of those at a small level, like with five people, you've sort of validated something, then start looking at, you know, more people, different geographies, different demographics, you know, more sophisticated version of your product, um, things that will continue to push the envelope and cause you to keep learning. Because the whole idea of this is that when we're working in situations of high uncertainty, what we want to do is optimize for our pace of learning. Hmm. Well, one of the things that you talk about in the book, too, is is how you move from theory to practice before the norms or the habits or the culture take over. And this whole sense of building a culture, um, how, how do you build a culture as a CEO or leader? How do you build a lean impact culture? What do you think are the main components? Yeah, you know, I I've, uh, have worked with a lot of different organizations who are really trying to take, you know, a fairly long-standing organization with a fairly established traditional culture and make it into a more lean or agile or innovative culture. It's, it's a classic problem, I think, across business and nonprofits and government. Um, I think everyone's talking about that these days. And too often what I see is that, you know, we try to bolt this on top of, you know, what is an already deeply ingrained way of working, right? Right. That that create an innovation team, you hire a chief innovation officer, you have an innovation contest. But then when you go back to your desk, or you go to a workshop, right, but then you go back to your desk, and the same stuff is waiting for you, like you're still rewarded based on the same things, you know, if it's a nonprofit, you're rewarded on bringing in grant money, and you're rewarded on executing to the letter of the grant, right? Um, And so I think that the only way to really transform a culture, um, you know, uh, in a more holistic way, is that we need to get to the root of things, which is the incentives. And innovation, I think that the breeding ground for innovation is setting goals that you can't meet with business as usual. Mm -hmm. 
right? So most organizations have goals that are extrapolation of what they're doing today. You know, we'll get slightly better, we'll do slightly more, and so next year this is how much we're going to do. Um, and that doesn't call for innovation because you can just like, you know, optimize a little bit and you'll be good. Um, but if, you, if you're trying to get like to be twice as good or 10 times as good next year, and it's something that you have no idea how you're going to get there with what you have today, <laughs> right. then it forces you to take some risks. It forces you to grapple with failure. It forces you to innovate. <laughs> and so I think, you know, setting audacious goals and not, you know, this is not an idea of like set the goal and fire people if they don't make it right. But it's set a goal and focus on that goal and reward people for striving towards that goal um, is, is the foundation for how innovation starts to take hold. Well, one of the things you talk about it also is hiring and and uh, supporting people who are entre- have an entrepreneurial mindset and are willing to take risks. Because if, if your organization is full of people who are, are too cautious to take on this new situation or this new project or or new focus then it's it's going to be really difficult to move things forward yeah and um i i think that's absolutely right and i think entrepreneurship is something that is is partly innate but is partly can be taught as well um you know and and what i've seen with you know these traditional organizations that are making the transition is that there are people who are absolute surprises who were you know sort of you know in the middle of the bureaucracy before but when given the opportunity really step up um and and start taking risks start you know being more agile and start innovating there are other people who are just not comfortable with that and and so you know trying to give people an opportunity to step up into a more entrepreneurial role i think is really important and for the people who are not comfortable with that, not good at it, don't want to do it, finding roles where they are actually in positions where what's important and what's valued is that consistency. Um, because the types of things that we do, if we're working in something that we know how to deliver and we just need to deliver it well, then we absolutely need people who can do that. But then when we're working in uh, situations of great uncertainty and we're trying to solve problems that we haven't figured out yet, we need people who can be a little bit more entrepreneurial. Yeah. Well, one of the things you talk about towards the end of the book is this hybrid gap where the difference, sort of the space between tradition, kind of traditional views of nonprofits and for-profit companies. And in that gap, you see things like social enterprises and triple bottom line companies. Talk, could, could you talk a little more about that and how you see that evolving? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I'm really passionate about. You know, we, we've traditionally thought of, you know, companies as making money and nonprofits as doing good. Um, and I think over the last few decades, the, the two sides have started to merge together, right? Yeah. Companies more and more want to do good and nonprofits more and more want to earn some revenue. And so we're starting to see things creep towards the middle. And I would say, you know, in, in my travels around the world, the most innovative, the most impactful organizations out there these days are generally somewhere in between the two. They mm-hmm. ne- don't look like a completely traditional nonprofit and they don't look like a completely traditional business. Um, and so I think that's where all the exciting stuff is happening. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge is that um, we don't have the structures either on the entity side or on the financing side that really match well with that. Mm-hmm. You know, So we still generally, most of the funding is either grant funding, which is 
completely philanthropic, or investment money, which is generally seeking risk-adjusted market rate returns. And so I think that in order, so, so, so even companies that are trying to do well by doing good or impact investors that are trying to, you know, make money while they're, uh, you know, while they're doing good, you know, they're getting pulled, they, they continue, all the pressures are for them to focus on bottom line first right. and impact second. Well, and there's a reason for that. If a company isn't viable from a profit perspective, it's not a company when you look at it from a business standpoint. But yeah, yeah. I, th I think that's right. And I would say it's it's very much possible for us to look at structures that blend the two, right? So mm -hmm. you know, we look at many different organizations that we work with take both grant money and investor money, so that the grant money allows them, for example, to serve markets that might not be economically viable from a business standpoint, right? And so. When you take both grant money and investor money, it allows you to more fluidly move between the spaces of impact and profit, um, because each the the money each of those pools of money is demanding something different from you. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that where the hybrid comes together is where we insist on both. And yes, it's much easier to kind of slip into a profit focus because that's been going on for so long in the for-profit sector. But for companies to then start to take on impact with equal value, that's that becomes more challenging for all the reasons we've discussed today. But I'm curious about, you mentioned a couple of things in terms of financing of these impact-focused organizations. Uh, there's impact investing, as you've already mentioned, but also blended funds and outcomes credits, which I hadn't heard about before. Can you tell, the, tell us about that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. I, I think that a, a big challenge and why it's been so hard for these hybrid companies to to you know, get funding is because the funding that shows up is just not the type of funding that they need. And so they have to put put it together from lots of different sources. And that takes a lot of work. So the idea of blended finance is what I started to talk a little bit about earlier, which is really looking at how do we take different types of funding, like grant funding and investor funding and debt funding, and blend them together to allow a, an enterprise to be able to balance between their missions of doing well and doing good, right? So, um, and this could happen in a parallel fashion or a serial fashion, meaning, so I, I give the example in the book of uh, Off-Grid Electric, which is a company in Tanzania that uh, provides home solar systems or sells home solar systems to poor families who are living off the electrical grid. And people will pay for their solar system using mobile money at just a few cents a day, right? So sort of how we might pay off a car or a house, they're paying off this home solar system. And it's allowed people to access solar power who just didn't have the upfront capital to be able to afford it before and allowed them to move from expensive and polluting alternatives like kerosene. Um, so it's been phenomenal um, uh, opportunity to, to do well while doing good. But the reality of this is that starting up these, this business and other businesses like it were just too risky for investors to come in to fund them, either through debt or equity, because it was an unknown market. It was, you know, they were working with very poor people who they weren't sure if they would pay back these loans that they were being given. Um, and so we at USAID um, gave them grant money to be able to get started to test out their solution and start with 
um, you know, small, small grant to, to even just experiment to see if this idea was viable at $100,000. And then when they saw that their idea you know, was really working and showing promise. Then we gave them a million dollar grant that allowed them to build out the infrastructure and start ramping up the business. And then later we gave them a $5 million grant that as they were really expanding and scaling, they needed to raise working capital. And, and a lot of the banks were hesitant to loan them money because they didn't have enough of a track record to show that they could repay it. And so, you know, our, our $5 million sort of acted like first lost debt that would cushion these investors and, and um, help them have the confidence to go in and, and, you know, give a loan to this, this little bit of a speculative company that was pretty new with a new business model. And so mm. that's one, one um, way that blended finance can work, but it's the idea of bringing together these different pools of money to, to allow for businesses, because I think there's a real trade-off. Um, I think we've talked so much about doing well while doing good, and there are absolutely some cases where the two are you know, it, perfectly aligned, and you know, you, the more money you make, the more good you do. But I think in more cases, and I, and I think we just don't talk about this enough, there is a real trade-off, you know, that if you're selling these home solar systems, if you're trying to be profitable, going out to the poorest people in the most remote place is generally not going to be as profitable um, versus selling to the people who are a little bit more wealthy, maybe can purchase a higher end system, maybe are a little closer to the city. Um, and so there's a, if you're primarily you know, taking investor money, there's a lot of pressure you can be under to focus on those more more uh, profitable customers. Hmm. Well, it's so interesting to hear you say that in that um, some of the folks who did work, some of the early work in conscious capitalism wrote a book called Firms of Endearment. And in that book, they talk about how uh, companies that focus on multi-stakeholder uh, well-being do 12 to 14 times better financially in the longer term than companies that just focus on profit. And that even exceeds the the performance of the good to great companies. From um, So <clears throat> it's interesting to hear you talk about the trade-off and uh, the, the reality of having to kind of do a dance between the two where in every moment, in every decision, you're not necessarily going to be able to um, meet the criteria for both. Is that fair to say, Anne May? Yeah, absolutely. I just I do think that there's a trade-off, and we should be conscious about that trade-off, and we should be conscious about how we can finance our way to meeting both. Right? I think it's possible to do both, but it often means maybe bringing in different types of money that allow us to do that. Hmm. Well, that's uh, it's great to see this innovation kind of going on in that area as well, as well as kind of alternate entities like B Corps and L3Cs, which are low profit LLCs and benefit corporations, which are all on the rise at the moment. Absolutely. And I think that that's just hopefully just the start of a trend of, of building more and more of these both structures as well as financing tools that allow companies to really balance between profit and purpose. Hmm. Well, Anne May, it's been amazing to talk with you and to talk about your book. I think, as you said, it's written for anyone who in any way wants to have impact. It's it's really um, business not as usual. So I, I really appreciate you being here and, and talking about those principles in your work in impact and helping us all understand how we can have more impact. Well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun.
Well, uh, to kind of wrap things up, I, I do this rapid round of three questions. Are, are you ready? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? So I would think I would say that the biggest thing I've learned is that its intentions are not good enough. That we we often think that if we give money or if we, you know, work on something that's pointed in the right direction that that is doing some good that 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 means that we're having impact. And and I think that impact needs to be just as rigorously looked at as revenues and profit. Um, and that means measuring it, optimizing it, continually to improve it. I love that. Uh, the second question is, what is the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? I mean, you've moved between sectors. So if, if uh, I'm interested if that if they were different or if there's one kind of answer to that for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I've certainly worked in very, very different worlds. But I think the thing that has and I don't know where this came from for me, but the thing that has served me the most is that I have this instinct for whatever reason to take a pretty long-term view of things. Um, and, and I think a lot of the mistakes that we make are tend to be that we are a little too short-term focused because that's what it's, what's in front of us. It's most tangible. Um, and whether it was, you know, while working in the tech industry or working in government, you know, sort of looking at the bigger picture, longer term of, you know, where we're going to end up on the path that we're on has, has served me well. That's great. And the, the last rapid round question is, what's one insider piece of advice you'd share with another business owner or for another, for a business owner or uh, someone else kind of balancing both worlds? How can I have impact? What would you say to them in terms of advice? You know, I would, I would use the old lean startup adage, which is get out of the building, like just, <laughs> um, you know, rather than trying to come up with your perfect plan, get out of the building, go talk to the people you're trying to help or um, improve their lives and work with them and, and learn from actually doing rather than um, trying to, to come up with the perfect plan. Mm. That's great. And I, I love so many of the stories in your book address that. So uh, there's some wonderful examples in there. So, well, Anne May, thank you so much for joining us. I've really, uh, really uh, found this an amazing conversation. So uh, I do appreciate the work you're doing in the world. Well, and thank you for the work you're doing. I think it's it's fantastic to have a podcast like yours around that's really helping people navigate this the space between profit and purpose. And and um, I'm I'm excited to have this opportunity. Great. Well, thank you again. Take care. Thank you. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.